0: It's good to be with you today, church. Today is the first Sunday of Advent that we're celebrating as a church. Advent is what we call the season leading up to Christmas. Advent is the season that is leading up to Christmas. It's a season that is especially dedicated to God. It's a season that is especially dedicated to thinking about, to contemplating and worshiping God for sending his one and only son for us. It's a season that is especially dedicated. Think about it like this. Every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through Sunday, every day belongs to God. But God has determined that one day of the week be especially set apart. That one day of the week, the Sabbath day, Sunday, be especially set apart, be especially dedicated to Him to be His day, the Lord's day. And so in the same way, every season belongs to God, but this season, it especially belongs to Him. It's a season where we especially dedicate to God, remembering Him as the God who keeps His promises. It's a season that we especially dedicate to him in remembering that our God is a God who saves. You see, from the moment that sin entered into the world back in Genesis 3, God promised that one day there would come the son of Eve. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That one day a Messiah, a Savior would come, who though he would be bruised on his heel, who would nevertheless crush the head of the serpent that told that ancient old lie. And for centuries after, God's people wondered when would the Savior come? When would this Messiah come? Throughout the centuries, God gave his people all throughout the Old Testament clues into who this Messiah would be. Generations came, generations went, and each generation got a glimpse of who this Christ would be in the leaders that God did provide. And the leaders like Adam and Abraham, Moses and David and on and on. Each generation got a glimpse of who this Christ would be, but they weren't the Christ. They were just pointers to the Christ. And so for thousands of years God's people longed for and anticipated God's true salvation. They longed for and they anticipated for the coming of the true and better Adam, for the coming of the true and better Abraham, for the coming of the true and better Moses and David. And that's what Advent means. Advent means coming. As we celebrate as Advent, we're reenacting As it were, the waiting of God's people throughout the centuries, longing for him, anticipating him as we get closer and closer week by week, day by day to Christmas Day, longing for him, anticipating him until Christmas morning until Christmas day finally comes. And we celebrate and we worship God because the one that has been promised has finally come. The one that we've been longing for is finally here. We're worshiping God as the God who keeps his promises. We're worshiping God as a God that can be trusted. We can trust him. So today we're going to look at how Jesus is the true and better Adam. We're gonna look at how Jesus is the true and better Adam. All throughout the scriptures, God is essentially asking man this one question. And the question is this. The question is, do you trust me? The question is, do you trust me? I think you really could boil it down to that one question. You read the scriptures. and all the things that God commanded his people to obey, and all the things that God called his people to believe, he is saying Do you trust me? What is he calling you to believe? What is he commanding you to obey? Well, will you obey? Will you believe? Well, it all depends. It depends on whether you trust him. In Adam and in Jesus, we're going to see this question of the ages be played out. What we're going to see is that in Adam, we're going to see the pinnacle example of a man who did not trust God under the best of circumstances. And in Jesus, we're going to see the pinnacle example of a man who did trust God under the worst of circumstances. You see, in Adam, what we see is a man who did not trust. He was under the best of circumstances. In Jesus, he did trust under the worst of circumstances. And then we're going to see why it matters so much what these two men did. Let's first look at Adam. In Genesis one, we see God creating everything And at the very apex of his creating, he creates man, he creates us. And in verse 28 through 31, God seems to be communicating in a great hymn over man. He's singing over man. The sense of it being a song, it's it's greater in the Hebrew, and the original language. But if you read it carefully, it comes out in the English as well. Let's read Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Did you pick up on that language there? God is singing over man. You know, Angela and I, my wife and I, experienced one of the greatest moments, days of our lives when we experienced the birth of our first child, Malachi. Malachi, sitting right there. Malachi, buddy, when God gave you to us, when you were born it was one of the greatest days of mama and papa's life all right and what do you do during these nine months of pregnancy we um we got we got ready for him we got a crib we painted his room for the very first time i'm learning of things like bumbo chairs and aspirators and and baby be yours. We're learning of, of all this stuff. You know, there's, there's pregnant women all over our church. Babies are just popping out left and right. Uh, so most of you know what I'm talking about. Angela and I are in the middle of adopting right now. So we're going through all of this again. And so when Malachi was first born, you know, they first hand the baby to the mother and she holds him. And they finally hand the baby to you, the dad. And, and as I was holding him for the verse, very first time and as I looked at him, I could only think of these words to express my feelings to him. And the words were, Malachi, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. And that's what's going on here. God said, let there be light. He readied the sky and he put up twinkling stars. He readied the land. He filled it with animals, animals that they could play with, animals that they could ride on. He put trees everywhere and its fruits and and said, eat of it freely. He created everything and he said, everything I have is yours. It's truly a father-child moment. It was truly the best of circumstances. It really doesn't get better. But we know the story. He does, however, give man one prohibition. Genesis two sixteen, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And that one prohibition, Just one prohibition in the midst of the best of circumstances. Just that one prohibition in the midst of every other thing that was approved and blessed by God. Just that one prohibition. Just that one description of the one thing that man couldn't have. That set the stage perfectly for God to ask this unyielding, eternal question that he seems to be asking at the turn of every page of the Bible, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Why is this the perfect way to ask this question? Why is this the perfect way to reveal our trust? Because there's no explanation given to the prohibition. You guys thought about that? There's no explanation given to the prohibition. God doesn't tell them why not to eat the tree. He just tells them not to do it and the certainty of the consequence if they do it. He doesn't teach Adam and Eve about the theology of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't tell them the details of what would happen if they would eat of it. Think about it like this. What if one night in the Garden of Eden, God would have said, Adam and Eve, come, and we're going to have a movie night. We're gonna have a movie night. I'm gonna show you a movie of the history of mankind if you were to eat this fruit, right? And Adam and Eve are watching. And what if God would show them the moment of their death? Their bodies were perfect now. What if they got to see their bodies withering away, their lungs gasping for air? And then cut scene to Cain. They see Cain, they see their firstborn, they see their son, right? but then he has the look on his face, look of discontent, a look of anger. And they watch in horror as he picks up a rock and strikes down dead their youngest son, Abel. And then cut scene, the flood, they hear the cries, the cries of the millions upon millions crying out in agony drowning. And then it gets quieter and quieter and quieter until there's silence until there is but the sound of lapping water. And we could go on and on and on, but he didn't show them. He doesn't tell them that if they disobey and eat of this fruit that there will be suffering and chaos and oppression and wars. He doesn't tell them, he doesn't say, your act of disobedience will be the source of every kind of sin, every kind of sorrow, every kind of disease that will ever occur in this world. He doesn't tell them. Pastor Tim Keller, points out in his sermon on this text that if God would have told Adam and Eve all these things, and then the serpent comes along and he says, hey, Adam and Eve, this fruit looks good. Why don't you eat of it? What would they have said? They would have said, "Uh, no, thank you, right? They would have obeyed. They would have obeyed, but where would their obedience have been rooted? Their obedience would not have been rooted in trust. Their obedience would have been rooted in cost benefit analysis. Their obedience would have been rooted in their wisdom not God's wisdom. Their obedience would have been rooted in their desire for self-preservation. Their self-love, not God-love. Self-trust, not trusting God. Their obedience wouldn't have been true obedience after all. So you see... If God didn't want them to eat the fruit, right, if that was what it was all about, if that is what this prohibition was all about, he could have kept man from eating the fruit, right? He could have stopped it. But what's he doing? What's he doing? What we see in the prohibition is that in the prohibition, what God is desiring is First and foremost, not the obedience of the hands, but he desires first and foremost the trust of the heart. As he always does, right? As he always does. He always wants our hearts. It wasn't first and foremost about the act. It was first and foremost about the trust. Have you ever wanted your spouse or your friend to do something, but for whatever reason you couldn't explain why? What do you say? You say, I really need you to do something. I can't explain right now. I just need you to, what? I just need you to trust me. This type of request, where all the whys and the explanations are not given, this type of request eliminates all room for ulterior and false motivations because it's simply rooted in trust. That's why this was the perfect test. When it comes to our obedience, God wants the trust of the heart before he wants the obedience of the hands. Trust is the central and main issue here. If we trust, we will obey. If we don't trust, we will not. It's as simple as that. It's not, I'm not, it's not oh man, I, I messed up again. I did this act again. But the sin that God is first and foremost concerned with is, what was your heart not trusting about God that led you to that action? We get so fixated on the act, I did this act again, right? But the next time we disobey, next time you sin, look at what's of primary concern. What was your heart not trusting about God that led you to that action? When you're looking at pornography, what is your heart not trusting about God? When you're holding on to bitterness and when you're refusing to forgive, When you're angry, can't forgive, what is your heart not trusting about God? When we sin, no matter what the sin, no matter how big the sin, no matter how small the sin, we can trace every sin back to what was our heart not trusting about God. The trust of the heart, that's the central issue and Satan knew it. Satan knew it. He knew if he could get us not to trust God, then the countless acts of disobedience would follow. He knew if he could get us not to trust God, then the countless acts of rebellion and running away from God, all those things would follow. He knew what to attack. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, So Satan is speaking through the serpent here. And the first thing that chapter 3 points out about him is his craftiness. Is his craftiness, which gives us the clue to not just look at what he's saying, but to look at his intentions and motivations for saying what he's saying. What does the serpent first say? Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? couple things to see here. First of all, notice this word, indeed. Indeed did God say. The sense of this is not that Satan is denying what God said. He's mocking what God said. Indeed, did he say that to you? Are you serious right now? Is he so selfish to keep that from you? Indeed, did he really say that? The second, he twists the prohibition, doesn't he? What did God actually tell Adam and Eve? What did he actually tell them? He said, eat from any tree, eat from every tree except one, right? But what does Satan say? What does the serpent say? He comes along and he says, so God told you you can't eat anything, huh? So God told you you can't eat from any tree, huh? Huh? What Satan is craftily trying to do is to tell Adam and Eve that if God would withhold anything from you, then that is the same thing as withholding everything from you. What Satan is craftily trying to tell Adam and Eve is that if God would keep anything from you, that's the same as keeping everything from you. And so isn't that how we feel? There's this one thing that you are desperate for. There's this one thing that you've been longing for. There's this one thing that you've been praying and and asking and begging God for, but he hasn't given it to you. There's this one thing that you can't think of any good reason why a good and loving God would not give it to you, but he hasn't given it to you. And so what do we do? Instead of looking around, at everything that God has given us, that God has approved for us to have, we look at the one thing and we say, God, you never give me anything. We say, God, you never give me anything. Why do we say that? Why do we feel that? Because of that old ancient lie of the serpent that entered into Adam's heart, also entered into our hearts. Satan knows what's most crucial to destroy. He's saying... You can't trust him. He's saying you can't trust him. He's saying you have to take your life into your own hands. He's saying you can't wait on him. He'll never give it to you. You got to make it happen for yourself. He's saying you can't trust him. He is not good. And then what happened? Genesis 3, 6. When the heart lost trust in God, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. They took, and they ate. They took, and they ate. Such a simple act, isn't it? Such a simple act of disobedience. It doesn't even seem all that evil. You know, it's one thing if Adam and Eve lost their minds, went on a rampage, started killing all the animals, you know, But they just took and they just ate. Such a simple act of disobedience, it doesn't even seem all that evil. And God's response seemed like a divine overreaction. And isn't that how we feel too sometimes? We look at the sins that are happening in this world and we think, you know, God's judgment and condemnation on murderers and rapists and pedophiles. Yes, I understand that. Yes, I understand that these little sins, right? The nice lady across the street, she doesn't believe in Jesus, but she doesn't, she's not really doing anything terrible. In fact, I see lots of good things that she does. God's judgment upon sin, even the sins that we see as little and not a big deal, it seems like divine overreaction. But why is this such an act of human rebellion that brought with it such unending consequences? Why is it a big deal? An old Puritan prayer says, the heinous of sin is not so much found in the act itself, but in the greatness of the person sinned against. The heinous of sin is not so much found in the act itself, but in the greatness of the person sinned against. Why is this such a big deal? It's a big deal because Adam looked at the person who is infinitely good, who is infinitely trustworthy and said, nope, you're not good and I don't trust you. The greatness of the sin is directly tied to the greatness of the person sinned against. You see, if we don't have a view of the greatness of God, we will never think sin is a big deal. It's actually a great litmus test for our view of God. If we're seeing sins in the world and don't think it's a big deal, it translates to how we view God. And that's Adam's story. He disobeyed because he didn't trust God. So why does it matter to us what Adam did, right? Adam didn't trust, Adam disobeyed. Why does it matter to us what Adam did? Well, it matters immensely because Adam is our father, as it were. He's our father, as it were. No matter who you are here today, whether you're born in Seoul, Korea, like me, or whether you're born in Austin, Texas, whether you are black or white, whether you are rich or poor, if you trace your lineage to your father and to your father's father and to your father's father's father, we all end up in the same place. We all end up in Adam. In a very real way, we all have the same father. Here's the problem. What do you get from your father? What do you get from your father? You get his likeness. You get his inheritance. What did we inherit from Adam? We inherited sin. We inherited disobedience. We inherited a distrust for God. And because of that, the Bible tells us that before we were born, before we actually do any acts of good or evil in us, sin and death reign, that in us, we're already declared sinners and guilty. Now, that's incredibly difficult for us to accept, nearly impossible for us to embrace. What do you mean? that I am declared a sinner and guilty, not because of what I've done, but because of what somebody else has done. It's incredibly difficult and and I'm with you, but hang in there for a little bit longer and I wanna show you that that model, that plan of salvation, that economy of justice that God has set up, it's actually the only way you and I could ever be saved. We needed a better Adam. Someone who would trust despite the temptation. We needed a better Adam. Someone who would obey and destroy that great ancient lie of the serpent. We needed a true and better Adam. We needed a better inheritance. An inheritance of life and not death. And who is this true and better Adam? Well, he's the son of Eve promised back in Genesis chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he's the second Adam, or the last Adam. The first Adam brought death, but the second Adam, the last Adam, brought life. And this is what Romans 5 tells us. Romans 5 is so dense and it's so rich, we could literally spend weeks in Romans 5. Entire books have been written about Romans 5, but I just want us to read seven verses from it. And I want to point out a few things. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just the sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin came into the world through one man. Who's that man? Adam. And what was the consequence of the sin of that one man? Death. Death just to Adam and Eve? No. It says death spread to all men. Verse 13, before the law was given, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What does that mean? Before the law was given, it says. Well, when was the law given? The law was given through Moses, through Moses. Here's Adam, and then 2,000 years later, through Moses, the law was given. And what it says here is, between the time of Adam and the time of Moses, make no mistake, people sinned. Every single person sinned, but God said he is not going to take those sins into account. From the time of Adam and to the time of Moses, he's not going to count the sins that were committed. Nevertheless what? Nevertheless death reigned it says. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Wait a minute. How is that possible? How is it possible for God not to count, for God not to take into account the individual acts of sin that were performed and acted by the people between Adam and Moses, but nevertheless death reigns? Why is that fair? How can that be? Well, because even though the individual acts of sin were not taken into account, what did they still have? They had an inherited sin. They had an inherited sin. Guilty pronouncement. And that's the bad news that the Bible is given us. Did you know that if God were to say, every single one of your sins, right? Think about all the sins that we commit. What if God were to say, I'm going to count none of that against you? If you were to do that, did you know that you and I would still stand guilty because of the act of Adam? because of the disobedience of Adam, because we are in Adam. That's why it matters what Adam did. That's why it matters so immensely what Adam did. Is there any good news to this? Adam, Paul says here, is a type of the one who was to come. He was just the type, he was a pointer, a true and better Adam was promised and his name is Jesus. And now here's the good news of the gospel. Verse 18, therefore, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every single one of us, no matter who you are, we are born into Adam. We can all trace our lineage back to him. And because of that, we stand guilty of his disobedience, of his act of distrust. For everyone in Adam, death reigns, but there came a true and better Adam. One that did not inherit the sin and guilt of Adam because he was of virgin birth. That's why the virgin birth of Jesus is so critical and it's so essential. He was literally the second Adam. In that, he was literally the second man ever born into human history without any sin. Think about that. He was literally the second Adam. But not only was he born without sin, much more than that, he obeyed. He trusted with every word that he spoke with every thought that he had, imagine that, with every thought that he had, with every act that he acted, he obeyed and he trusted. So do you think it's unfair that we would be declared sinners, that we would be declared guilty, not by our own works, but by the works of another? Do you think that's unfair? Well, what if we could have it our own way? What if, Uh, We could have it a way where we would be declared guilty or righteous, not by the works of another, but by our own works. Was there any hope in that? Do you want your eternal security and salvation to hang in the balance based upon your own ability to obey perfectly, based upon your own ability to trust completely? No, there's no hope in that either. And so, from the very beginning, what we see is that God has set up a plan. He has set up an economy of justice. He has made a way from the very beginning by which, yes, we are declared sinners and guilty, not by our own works, but by the work of another. But also, we can be declared righteous and obedient and holy and trusting, not by our own works, but by the work of another. Yes, because of the one man's disobedience, the many were declared sinners. but also by the one man's obedience, the many will be declared righteous. That's what Romans 5 is saying. And it's glorious, it's glorious. This is the only way you and I can ever be saved. It's the wisest, most loving way. The Garden of Eden was the place where Adam's disobedience and his distrust was most clearly seen, right? Well, where's the place where the second Adam, Jesus, where his obedience and his trust was most clearly seen? It was also in the garden. It was also in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And what God commanded this second Adam, this true and better Adam, also involved a tree, right? But unlike Adam who God commanded to obey and to trust under the best of circumstances of the garden of Eden. He commanded this second Adam, this true and better Adam, to obey and trust under the worst of circumstances. You see, in that sunny and warm garden of Eden, God told Adam, obey me. Obey me and trust me about the tree and you will live. You will get paradise. I will be with you and you will be with me. But what did Adam do? He disobeyed. He didn't trust. Under the best of circumstances, he didn't trust. But in that dark and cold, gloomy garden of Gethsemane, God told the second Adam, the true and better Adam, obey me, trust me about the tree. And you will be crushed. And you will become sin. And you will die. And you will lose me. And you will be forsaken by me. And what did this true and better Adam do? He obeyed. He trusted. It wasn't easy. He cried out to God. God, is there any other way? Is there any other way being forsaken by God, losing God, becoming sin on our behalf was something Jesus had never experienced throughout all eternity. He had not known it. It wasn't easy. He prayed with such agony that the capillaries under his skin, they burst. He sweat great drops of blood. Nevertheless, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Under the worst of circumstances, the true and better Adam, Jesus, he obeyed. He trusted. At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. Jesus destroyed that great lie that slithered into our hearts. Is God withholding? Is God keeping good things back? No, he didn't even keep his son back. Can you trust this, God? Yes. Yes, you can. At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they took and they ate, right? They took and they ate such a simple act of disobedience that plunged them into an unimaginable world. Such a simple act of disobedience and came with it unimaginable consequences. But the second Adam, the true and better Adam, because of the cross, he says, a thousands of years later, around the table with his disciples, these familiar words, take and eat, right? Take and eat. My body, which was broken for you. My blood, which was shed for you. Take and eat. Such a simple act of obedience and comes with it unimaginable blessings. No matter who you are here today, there's only one of two places where you can be. As far as God is concerned, there's only one of two places where you can be. You could either be in Adam or you could be in Christ. There is no third place. The bad news that the Bible is giving us is that every single one of us, no matter who you are, we are all born into Adam, and because we are all born into Adam, we inherit a guilt and a consequence and a condemnation for his disobedience and his distrust. But the good news that the Bible is giving us, the good news of the gospel is that we can be born again we could be born again into Jesus and because of his obedience because of his trust, our inheritance can change. Our lineage can change. Our eternity can change. That's what Christianity is all about. Christianity isn't a group of people trying to not obey, trying to obey because Adam disobeyed, right? Christians are a group of people that are sitting around saying, we desperately need someone to obey for us. We desperately need someone who could trust for us. If you're in here and you've never placed your trust in Jesus, what's keeping you? What's keeping you? Today can be the day of your salvation. Cry out to him. Pray to him the best way you know how and tell him, God, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. Yes, because of my acts of sin, but also because of the sins of Adam and because I'm in him. I need to be born again. God, I stand before you doubly guilty, right? I need a true and better Adam. I need a Jesus that would obey, even obey to the point of death on the cross. I want to trust in in him and him alone for my salvation. Today can be the day of your salvation. But if you're here and you have placed your trust in Jesus, but you feel that old lie creeping back in that you can't trust him, That if you want to be happy, if you want to be satisfied, you better take matters into your own hands. That you can't wait on him. That that he's not good. If you feel that old lie creeping back in, what do you do? Join Jesus in the garden of prayer. Join Jesus in the garden of prayer. That's where his trust was strengthened. Look upon, gaze upon the cross of Jesus and see afresh this God who, who is not holding anything back. He's not withholding anything good from us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You're saying you trust him for your eternal salvation. Trust him for everything else. Trust him for everything else. You can trust him. You can trust him. Place all of your trust in the true and better Adam who trusted God when we never could. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom of salvation, your plan for salvation, your thoughts concerning it. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts above our thoughts. We could not have created a plan of salvation for ourselves that would have actually saved us. And yet you thought of one. You thought of a horrific one. One that included the death and crucifixion of even your own son. We see now, God. We see now, God, you are not a God that is withholding. We see now, God, that you are not a God who's keeping good things back. But at the cross of Jesus, we see that you are a God who is offering us everything, including yourself. Father, help us to see. Give us the eyes to see. Give us the ears to hear. Give us the hearts to comprehend you, a God who is infinitely good, infinitely trustworthy. And by the true and better Adam, Jesus, help us to along with him, trust you in all things. We place all of our trust in him. He is our only way of hope. He is our only way of salvation. In his powerful, most loving name, Jesus, we pray.